0: Hello, Revelers. Today is Wednesday, January 13th, and I am happy to finally get Dr. Sheldon Jacobs' episode out into the world. He has a heart for caring about people who are having a hard time. That's a sort of overview about him. I think that it's important that we talk about homelessness which you'll hear a lot about from him and his experiment as living as a homeless person for a short time. And it's unfortunately getting worse and worse because of the pandemic and people being evicted. And every town is reacting to that problem differently. At the end, Dr. Sheldon will plea for you to get involved with your own agencies in your area who are working with the homeless population. And the good thing about getting involved at the local level is that it's always better to give to a charity, a nonprofit who is local the national ones, the money doesn't get to people as quickly and as officially as the local ones in general. So please, please, please check all of the resources in the show notes. Remember some of your apps do not let you click on the show notes. So either switch to a different app, or please go to the website, which is revelrevel.life.https colon slash slash revelrevel.life to get all of the information at every show note. It's all there. And I put a lot of time and effort into giving you all of the book and other sources that I can. So please check it out. It really will help fulfill a well-rounded listening experience, make it more interactive by doing that. So without further ado... Hello and welcome to Revel Revel. Today I am seeing a new friend who I feel like after everything we've been through, (laughs) now you're an old friend at this point. Dr. Sheldon Jacobs is back recording with me. We recorded back in end of October, beginning of November, and we had sound issues. So we're gonna try to have a 2021 post-the assault on the Capitol talk and bring in things that are maybe more topical today and yet still talk about the same things that we talked about in in the fall so this will be a fun challenge hi sheldon hello Hello lauren How, how you doing oh i'm okay man yeah i mean redos are never fun but we're gonna try to make this fun okay
1: yes 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 indeed
0: yeah all right so let's start off with how we became acquainted
1: yeah, so I'm an alumni non-criminal high school as well in San Diego, and uh, I believe we have a common, I guess, friend, and, and it's somebody who I'm not, like, friend friends with, but somebody who is friends of a few friends of mine on Facebook, and she had reached out to me and, and referred me to you and, and indicated that, you know, I should see about coming onto your show, talk about my book and, you know, whatever other cool things that I have to share, So so here I am.
0: Well, and you do have cool things. So let's get right to it. You grew up in San Diego, right?
1: That is correct. So I grew up in San Diego. Uh, and then my my parents moved me to from, from Southeast San Diego, so the inner city of San Diego, to Rancho Pinasquitas, halfway through my third grade year of elementary school. And so that's how I ended up. Finishing out grade school in the Rancho Penasquitas area. So going through Sunset Hills, Black Mountain Middle School, and then Mount Carmel High School.
0: So what made them want to move to the Rancho Penasquitas area?
1: My parents wanted a better environment for me. Also, of course, a a better school district as well. So it felt that the Rancho Penasquitas area gave me the opportunity uh, where I would be afforded a really good education As well as a much better
0: environment and you said inner city so most people don't really think of san diego as having inner city because you know they see the picture postcard version that (laughs) the city wants to promote so what was that like and what part of town was it and everything
1: okay so the area where i grew up that's called southeast san diego which is adjacent to logan heights which is another like there's a a barrio if, if you will And and so, San Diego is a large, very large city, right? And so, obviously, you know, when we think of San Diego, we think of the beaches, and but we don't think about, you know, the the inner city where there's gangs, there's drugs, there's prostitution, there's many social ills, uh, crime. Uh, And so that was that was one of the areas that I lived in prior to moving to Rancho Penasquitos.
0: But you moved up to Penasquitos in like third grade, I think, right?
1: Quick, so yes, so I moved to Pinewood Skidoo in the middle of my third grade year. However, you know my grandparents they still lived in Southeast San Diego, and so on the weekends when my, I would always visit them on the weekends because sometimes my parents would have to work, and so so I was always in that area. I was always connected to that area, even though we, we moved. Our church was still in that area. A lot of my friends and family were still in that area, so I still had that connection.
0: And um, what did your parents do? What were what were their professions as you were growing up?
1: So my mom, she worked for the San Diego District, District Attorney's Office as a clerk. And then my stepfather, he was he was a firefighter. And then my parents, they got divorced when I was about, I think I was in the sixth grade, they divorced. So, But they were married from the time I was about six years of age to the time I was about 11 years of age.
0: So what was life like once you moved to Penasquitos? How did it change or not change as maybe as much as your parents thought it might?
1: So it was, it was a very interesting experience for me, especially in my first few years of living in Rancho Penasquitas. So one of the things that I wasn't prepared for was the racism. You know, there's a lot of racism in the Rancho Penasquitas area. And at the time, I, I was never, I never experienced racism before. And so my, my first year uh, in third grade, you know, I was called the N-word, left and right by some of my counterparts or my white peers, I should say. So I was getting into fights all the time. And, you know, it wasn't too many of us uh, black kids, you know, in entrepreneurship, so it was probably myself and maybe three or four other black kids in my entire elementary school at Sunset Hills. And so it was tough just kind of dealing with, I guess, the, the, the cultural shock of that. Just there not being too many of us for one, and number two, dealing with the racism, dealing with the derogatory words that I would hear on a weekly basis. And so that was very frustrating. And then when I got to middle school, my, my mom would always say that some of the administrators and some of my teachers were prejudiced. They'll make comments like, "You yeah, guys should have stayed in, in, in the inner city school district or San Diego Unified School District because, you know, by him coming here, it, it brought her our test scores down because I, I had IEP. I was diagnosed with a learning disability around the sixth grade. And so my mom would have to go to like quarterly IEP meetings. And some of my teachers would make comments like that. And you know, obviously it was very disheartening. It was very hurtful. So I remember my mom would come home sometimes and she would she would cry, you know, and and she wouldn't tell me why at the time. This is something that she revealed to me, you know, some years later. But but yeah, it was a very difficult time from the standpoint of dealing with the racism. And then as I got to middle school, like it, it sort of subsided. And, and I'm not sure if it subsided because uh because I, you know, I it started becoming more popular, I had more friends. I guess people, you know, especially a lot of my white peers, uh they became more comfortable with me. And so I wasn't hearing or, or or experiencing as much racism as I was when I was in elementary school. My later years, you know, were, were much better than my first few years.
0: So as you know, I I'm muted. So I'm just like not interrupting you. I'm just shaking my head at all of this. <laughs> Um wow. Okay, and so this was you graduated in 97 from high school, right? Correct. So this was late 80s, early 90s that you moved to and were experiencing all this, right? Yes. Yeah. It's funny how people think that integration happened so long ago and everyone should be fine, but uh it's not. I mean, obviously it took a long time for people to accept you and accept people from other backgrounds and mm-hmm. races, religions, whatever, coming to a very all white area. And and that was eighties and nineties. That's not that long ago.
1: Yes. No, I, I agree. I mean, I think the way you said it was, was perfect. Uh, I think there, there, there was that acceptance piece that it took a couple of years really uh, for me to, um, you know, for my, peers to kind of say, okay, he's, he's okay. Or he's, you know, he's safe enough for me to be friends with or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so yeah. and, and it's, it's interesting because just kind of to provide a little perspective, like my Japanese kid is a very like middle class community. So a lot of my peers growing up were, their parents were, you know, like white collar careers, doctors, lawyers, professional athletes, uh, you know, you name it. And so some of my peers, you know, obviously I'm sure her, things from their parents and and, and maybe things they saw on TV, you know, but it was very interesting kind of to experience that level of racism considering the type of community it was in terms of the working class, you know, demographics, if you will.
0: Yeah. And so, as I mentioned in the intro about how this is just five days since the terrorist assault on the Capitol. And, you know, of course, ever since then, we've been seeing stupid things in the press about Oh, but they're from good families or they have good jobs and they work at, they, you know, they're lawyers and they're doctors and they're actually like state or government employees sometimes. And so when you're saying, but, you know, these kids, these families are from middle class or upper middle class backgrounds. It's like, so what, so what, you know, it doesn't mean anything that they should know better or uh, be better people. Yeah, no, no.
1: I, I think you're right. I think what, what I was trying to get at more or less was I think that's what really sort of caught me because a lot of times we hear about like racism, we hear about like more rural, you know, communities, rural towns down south, and so you know, so here we are, you know, in, in this community uh, that's you know a, a very military-based community because we're because our pressing me to Miramar, and so, you know, so obviously you know a lot of a lot of families are military and but also just, you know, there's the middle to upper, upper middle class, you know, sort of demographics that are in that community. And so, so I guess for me is more or less like, it, it doesn't fit the, the typical mode of like, what you would see like, you know, down South, you know what I mean? Whereas these rural sort of communities where racism is so, so prevalent. And I felt like a lot of racism that, that I experienced too was It was more like covert too, you know what I mean? So some of the things that like my teachers would say, you know, it's my parents trying to get me to disenroll from the school and, or disenroll from the school district. Things like that, that I experienced, you know, firsthand living in that, living in my Japanese kids.
0: Right. So you have a background that has its difficulties and challenges, on slots. It sounds like, you know, in some periods of your life and what happened after high school? Like where did your path go? these things you know how do they influence your path?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say I mean I had had to learn how to be resilient pretty quickly and so so aside from the racism you know also I mentioned I had a, a diagnosed with learning disability which is probably was the best thing because throughout elementary school I was I was struggling and we couldn't figure out what it was and why I was so behind in my reading and 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 why was I struggling you know so much with math and and so I was getting further and further apart from you know my my peers in terms of where I should be at, you know, grade level wise. And so, so that carried on all, all the way into middle school. And then that's finally when they found out that I had this, you know, this processing, this auditory processing issue, which caused me to learn at a different rate than you know than my cohorts or my or my peers, I should say. And so so what happened was when I was having all these struggles in school. It's almost like that. There was like this this stigma because you know I got put into special education classes you know throughout middle school, and all, all the kids in the school knew that yeah, we were like the special ed class because there was only like five of us in this classroom right it was like a it was like a self-contained classroom. So people kind of knew that we were like the, the quote unquote trouble kids, or or the dumb kids, or the not smart kids. All these negative connotations were sort of attached to us, right? So what I started doing is because of some of the the ridicule that I was experiencing from from my peers, you know, I started kind of drifting further away from the mainstream. So I started associating with some of the negative peers in the school, right? And then back in my community in South East San Diego, I started hanging out with you know some of the you know the game bangers in my grandparents' neighborhood, and because they accepted me. You know, they accepted me for who I was. They accepted me for just you know being the person that, that I am. So, uh, so that's kind of what how I gravitated towards this this gang culture. And so I started, you know, doing bad stuff like trying to fight people and trying to jump people and you know, stealing and lying to my parents and doing all kinds of just crazy stuff. And so what happened was three three events happened during my eighth grade year. Um, so one of them was. One of my close friends uh, from from Southeast San Diego ended up getting killed in a drive-by shooting, which was which was gang-related. That really like struck me. And then and then another event happened where and this, and this, I'm not making this up. And, and like I said, literally in, in a one-week span, I had a knife put out of me. And that and the knife that got put out of me was I was walking to walking to school, walking to Black Mountain middle schools. And in Rancho Penasquitos, there's a lot of Asian gangs, right? And so th- this Asian Crip gang. Because I because the gang that I associated with was a blood gang, so red. I always wear red, and and so uh, this Asian this Asian crip gang tried to jump me. It was like six of them, and one of the guys pulled a knife on me, and I had to run for my life because if I didn't run and get away, who knows what they would have done to me. And then a few days after that, um, on, the, on that weekend, I was at my grandparents' house, and there's a park that was right down the street from their house, and I was walking from the park going going back home, and this car pulls up beside me and stops, like you know he slams on the brakes and that freaked me out and I look and all of a sudden I see this, this guy in the passenger seat pull out a gun and he just points it at me and, it, and I, I look for a quick second and then I just start running and I'm not sure what happened because I, I assumed that he tried to pull the trigger and I'm not sure if the gun jammed. I'm not sure if something happened there there was some you know, divine intervention but that gun didn't go off and I didn't get shot but all I know is I kept running and I was able to get away and, and escape, but probably would have been my death, you know. Um, and so so that's when I kind of had like a, a a moment where I started reflecting on, OK, if I continue down this path, this path that I am on, that I'm either going to end up killed or or sent away to prison or something like that. And I didn't want that. You know, there was something deep down inside of me. I, I, I did not want that. My, my, my family, my parents, they did a great job of raising me and they taught me better than that. And so that's when I made a vow to, you know, to turn my life around because I felt like I was given a second chance to kind of redo things. And so that's and so that's what I did.
0: So, the theme today might be redo. <laughs> <laughs> so you sort of had a, a turnaround moment, and then what what trajectory did you get put on after that point?
1: Let's kind of back up a little bit. So my eighth grade teacher I had an eighth grade teacher is Miss Haley. So she was like this. She had reputation as the as being the meanest teacher in the whole school. And she always had this sort of scowl on her face. So we all were like afraid of her, right? And so one of the things that she that she did was she made me, she made me stay at the school in her class each day. It was almost like it was like a, a voluntary after-school detention. She was the person, the, the teacher who ran the in-school suspensions and the in and the detention. So she had like a little setup in her in her classroom. And so so what I do is I stay after school for the rest of the school year and got my grades up because she's, she's one of the first teachers that really saw something in me that I didn't see myself at the time. And so she really pushed me. And that's when I started realizing, wow, if I work hard that I can, I can do this school thing. I can be successful, right? And so, so that's kind of where, where I really started was, was my eighth grade school year. So from there, I got to high school with a cumulative 3.0 GPA, which was big for somebody like, like myself, who, like I said, you know, some of my teachers were even unsure if I would even graduate from high school. And so the fact that I was able to to maintain this cumulative 3.0 GPA throughout my four years of high school was was tremendous. I also played basketball from Malcolm High School, several years on the varsity team. Uh, And then from there, I went to um, the Ohio State University because they offered me uh, pretty much a a full scholarship in terms of academically and had had a partial athletic scholarship as well. So they gave me the most money, essentially. So I went to Ohio State University and I graduated in four years. Uh, made a dean's list several times as well, and then from there uh, I started working in group homes. My aunt had her own group homes, and what was what was interesting was after I finished college, I didn't know what I really wanted to do. It was kind of a crossroads for me in terms of, you know, I had these these dreams of playing in the NBA, and that was I think somewhat far fetched for me, and so. Uh, so then my, my, my backup plan was I wanted to be a, a, a sports broadcaster, and and that kind of didn't work out. I came back home, and again, not knowing what I wanted to do, my, my aunt had reached out to me, because my aunt, she owned several group homes for uh, troubled or at-risk youth, many of which have been uh, abused and neglected by their own parents. So a lot of them were in the child welfare system. Some were also in the juvenile justice system as well. So she asked, asked me to come and work for her. And so I was hesitant at first because I heard a lot of horror stories about <laughs> these kids. You know, some of them just had a lot of problems. And, you know, was, uh, there were stories where they would attack staff and growl and you know, steal the, you know, the, the group home bands and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I was like, I don't want nothing. I don't want no part of that. <laughs> that's, what, that was what my, that's what my thought, thought was at first. But like I said, I didn't have any job, you know, prospects. So, so I took her up on it. And. It was the best thing I ever did. Uh, I worked for her for about almost four years, uh, and I worked my way up in, in, in her company, and to the point where I was running her business. And from there, we had a we had a, a resident therapist who worked with the with, with our kids. He was a licensed marriage family therapist, and you know we were paying him a lot of money. I was like, man, you know, I can I can I can do what he does. He just sits and talks to talks to the kids, and I, I can do that and be just as effective or even more effective. That's what I said to myself. So I started asking him, you know, about the profession and, you know, can I get it understanding it more? And, you know, he was talking to me and gave me some, you know, some, some inside scoops. And, and I was like, you know what, I think, I, I think I want to go this route. And so, so that's when I uh, started, you know, pursuing uh, graduate schools and looking through the different graduate schools. And, and that guy got stepped into my, my dream school, which was uh, Alliance International University based in Scripps Ranch in San Diego. And then I went, I got my master's, and then it was a dual program, so I did, it was a master's and a doctorate, and so I did the master's and a doctorate, and finished, and then uh, relocated to Las Vegas, and, because I had a, a job with uh, Clark County, and um, Department of Juvenile Justice Services, and working with, you know, Troubled Youth, and uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then, and then from there, my, my career just really just, Expanded, so then I got into teaching. I was uh, a professor at a couple of the universities here in Las Vegas. Uh, I did that on the side, and then uh, and I did some other like contract work. And then uh, this last year, I started my private small private practice on the side. Also, uh, had a great opportunity to work with the Las Vegas Raiders as well as one of their team clinicians. So but things really started happening for me, and um, so yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at.
0: So, your signature says Vice President NAMI Southern Nevada. What does that mean, the NAMI?
1: Yeah, so so I sit on a couple of boards. And so, one of the boards that I sit on, I'm the Vice President of NAMI, which stands for uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, so, it's a national uh, grassroots organization, largest mental health organization uh, in the United States. And we have a, a Las Vegas chapter, which I'm the vice president of. And um, I'm also, I also sitting on the board for our um, board of examiners for licensed marriage and family therapists and clinical professional counselors. So I kind of oversee all the licensees in the state of Nevada uh, as well. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I, I keep myself pretty busy. And then on top of that, sorry, and the, last, the other thing is I, just, and I also released a book. I released a book in November, uh, 2020 called 48, uh, an experiential memoir on homelessness, which details my experience going undercover as a homeless man for 48 hours about two years ago. And the, the, the objective of that experience was raise awareness for mental health and for homelessness. And so, uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely check it out.
0: Okay. So we'll pick apart your book in just a little bit. Let's talk more about the evolution and threads and things like that. Sure. So what brought you to Vegas? Why Vegas? I mean, it sounds like you could have Look. gone anywhere with your skills.
1: So you know what Las Vegas—it was a weird thing. You know, again, I think it was—I think I was, you know, spiritually meant to be here. Um, I'm a man of faith, and so I feel strongly that you know I, I was being led here for a reason. And uh, and so it was one of those things where in Las Vegas, I would always come here as as a child growing up with my family for vacations, for friends to party, <laughs> and and so when I was applying for jobs uh, in in different areas. You know, something I I kept coming back to Las Vegas. You know, job openings in Las Vegas. Um, the pay in Las Vegas is also pretty well, and, and then couple of that with the cost of living, and so then also you know it wasn't too far from California. So, and if I figured if I were to live in Las Vegas, people would always want to come visit because <laughs> it's Las Vegas, right? And so, so that's when I kind of started thinking about you know uh, maybe maybe Las Vegas is is the place you know for me to settle and you know to start my career and. and uh, and start a family. And so, but the family part was kind of something that was always a little sketchy because obviously Las Vegas, is a new fiber city and so many vices and you hear all these negative things, but which is far from the truth. Uh, You know, it's a a great place to raise a family and these things I didn't really quite know at the time. And so uh, I think it was this, I think spiritually, I think I was called to be here Um, in Nevada there's a lot of need in our state. Uh, you know, we're behind when, when it comes to like education, when it comes to mental health. Uh, you know, we have a lot of issues in our state, uh, especially in the community of Las Vegas as well. And so, you know, I feel like it ended up being the, the perfect thing, the perfect place for me. Uh, we, my, my family and I, we've been here for 11 years and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't trade for anything. And, and of course, San Diego is still home. You know, we, still, we still go back to San Diego to visit. Uh, it'll always be, but uh, Las Vegas is our, our, our new home.
0: So, you know, you said that you felt called to be there and that you are there for a reason. And I think your primary, your primary group of people that you help through your practice are kids, right? Correct. So how did you decide that? Was it because of your experience at the group home that you decided to focus on kids or what was that evolution like?
1: You know what? I think that's a good question. I think, I think it was because of you know, my, I think most of my experience involves around kids. So working with youth, I think it's just, is turned into like my real house, if you will. And so I think it started, you know, with the group home, because that's when I was like my first experience working with kids. And then I worked in other facilities, you know, that geared towards youth as well. And so I think that it just, you know, with time, you know, I developed a, a level of comfortability working with that population and i think also too just from the standpoint of some of the things that i've been through like my struggles and uh you know just kind of i feel like i have credibility with with youth i think and you think about you think about youth and young people like they they're very smart they can see see through people a lot of times you know so if you're not authentic with them you know they, they can pick up on it right away and so i think that that's also something that really helped me because a lot of, a lot of my colleagues in the field like they won't work with especially teenagers they won't they will not touch teenagers because. It can be challenging, you know, for obviously for many different reasons. But for me, you know, I, I feel like that's probably where I'm most comfortable with is with that population, is, is teenagers. And again, I think a lot of it has to do with just my own experiences and things that I've been through. Obviously, not every teenager's been through, you know, what I've been through. But I think that some of the struggles, you know, that I've been through, I think a lot of my, my a lot of the kids that I work with, you know, have been through some struggles, you know, that are on a similar level. And so, and so, I think that I'm I'm more relatable in that sense for them. They can relate to me, and I can relate to them. And so, it it builds on our connection. And then, with that connection, it's so important because then then comes trust, right? So, you know, without that connection, it's hard to, to establish trust. And when it comes to therapy, it's all is the trust is, is is the biggest thing, because without that, you know, you can't take you can't really it's hard to take people on different directions especially when it comes to talking about things that are really uncomfortable things that are traumatic things that where they might might not always feel quite safe in talking about you know so, that, that's, so that's why that relationship is, is so important and that trust is so important
0: and how do you find these kids to work with where does that group come from so from
1: my prior practice you know a lot of this just ref- it's word of mouth i think so in las vegas i'm pretty In eleven years I've been here, you know I've developed a really good reputation within the community. Um, So a lot of people know who I am and and what I do. And so I've said the majority of the referrals that I receive is through is through word of mouth. It's through like referrals from from friends, family, and so uh, so really I don't really have to do a whole lot of marketing because. Of, just of the reputation that I have, uh, which has been, um, you know, I've been very fortunate to have because m- many clinicians, they have to do, they have to market themselves. Right. And so I think something too is, you know, I'm also, I do a lot of like media. I'm on television a lot doing different things like town halls and more of the advocacy slash awareness work. And so, so I think that also helps to get my name out there as well.
0: So we talk a lot on this podcast about putting yourself out there. And I think that, because you are putting yourself out there, the community has responded. So well done. Good for you. So, you know, it's, I guess it's impossible to talk about mental health and therapy and stuff without saying that, you know, 2020 was pretty much a shit show and I'm sure that it has impacted your work. So Uh, but I don't know how, can you tell us like what life as a therapist was like before 2020 and then if it's changed and how it was changed?
1: Yeah, certainly. So I think obviously there was, I think before the pandemic, there was a lot of need. Um, You know, I think we look at suicide rates, uh, especially across like um, communities of color, it has increased and this is pre pandemic. So with the pandemic has only exacerbated a lot of those concerns when it comes to, the suicide piece, also you know, with, with the pandemic, you know, more people are, are more isolated than before. So that's been problematic as well because you hear this, you hear this message of, you know, making sure that you social distance yourself from others, right? And so and so think the vernacular is, needs to be turned around. I think, I think it should be more, more or less physical distancing, social practice, social connectedness, because I think we need to be socially connected. You know, we're social beings and So one of our basic human needs, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, one of our basic needs is is belongingness right it's, it's that connectivity and and so when without that, that's going to have a, a tremendous impact on our mental health right and so I think that that vernacular is something that you know needs to be needs to be modified or changed because because think people you know take that literally people have been literally like socially isolating themselves right and so and I think that that's only exacerbated many, many things, especially mental health. So one of the things that, you know, since the pandemic, I've been in high demand. I think, I think most mental health professionals everywhere have been in higher demand because there's definitely more need out there. And so one of the things that I've learned post-pandemic is telehealth and and the benefits of telehealth. I mean, obviously, telehealth has been around for a while, but you know, being able to, to do therapy remotely or, or electronically, if you will, uh, I think that that's that's been, it's been very valuable. It's, it still doesn't replace completely the, the in-person interaction. Uh, Cause I feel like there are some aspects of telehealth that is very just unnatural, unfortunately, but I think it, it is better than nothing. Uh, and so I think that, you know, we've been able to access more people, you know, since this pandemic who maybe didn't have transportation or didn't have the various resources to, to seek therapy. So, so that's been one the one positive. This, the other thing to that is obviously a lot of people still are for different reasons still have this trepidation about therapy, right? So, so, so one of the things that I'm trying to push as well is just having more, you know, spreading more awareness. So having like, you know, town hall discussions regarding mental health, um, trying to equip equip people with different tools to help them cope during these difficult times. And so I've been holding like virtual Town halls with various groups of people, whether it be with our our local school district folks, whether it be with first responders. Uh, You know, I've been trying my best to get creative when it comes to being able to get the word out about mental health and and the importance of of awareness.
0: So, have you seen a difference in the typical issues that your clients are bringing to you before 2020 and then after?
1: I think at first, I think the first few months of the pandemic, I think there was a lot of sort of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety around what was going to happen next with this whole pandemic. I think we all I think we all felt that, right? I think kind of going in a month in, for one, I think we didn't think it was going to be going on this long. <laughs> for number one, number two, I, I felt like there was still like a lot of unknowns around and there still are some unknowns, but I think there was more unknowns then. And so I think that a lot of my clients, a lot of their struggles were with what lies ahead, what happens next. I think some of that has been alleviated because we've been in this, you know, for almost a year now. So I think that some of the the, the biggest struggle that I'm seeing now with people is just not being able to, for some, you know, some people losing jobs over because of the pandemic. Uh, Some of my clients have you know, lost their jobs. Um, Some of them are having a hard time putting food on the table. So it's kind of some of those social determinants that, that have been, that being more profound during this time. So, so people were kind of, sort of worried about how, how am I going to survive? How am I going to, you know, how's my family going to survive? So I think that's kind of been the biggest focus for, for a lot of folks, a lot of my clients or just people that I've come across in the community. So, and then the other piece of that is, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are just are, are tired of kind of, you know, kind of being in this sort of bubble bubbles, right? Where they can't go about life in a normal way. So I think that that's also impacting people mentally. So, so it's it's definitely a very right now, and then throw in some of the social unrest and some of the social injustice stuff that's been going on. I think for a lot of my a lot of my clients, there's also been kind of more stress provoking as well. So, so yeah, we're we're definitely some interesting times right now.
0: Yeah. So you are you and the therapists of the world are carrying a really heavy burden. Thank you for trying to alleviate that. Mm-hmm. <sighs> So to get to your experiment, which led to your book, your experiment was what year? When did this all start?
1: So that was Labor Day weekend of 2018.
0: 18. Okay. So Mm -hmm. what happened prior to that, that brought you to this idea to go out and live as a homeless person?
1: So we have a, a a area in Las Vegas, kind of near our downtown area. We call it the homeless corridor. So it's an area that's, that's, uh, very close to our local shelters, uh, our, our local homeless shelters, and and so for years I would drive this the same route uh, to work, and and it seemed like with time I started seeing more people camped out on the streets, more homeless people camped out on the streets, and uh, it was it would get to me, and so my 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 everyday routine would be in the morning wake up and then go to the gym, work out at the gym, take a shower at the gym, and then my office is like down the street from from the gym where I belong to. And so my gym though was in the heart of, I won't say the heart, but it's, it's in downtown area, which was close to the heart of the homeless corridor. So, so what was interesting is sometimes will we'll, there'll be homeless individuals that will come into the gym and they'll buy like maybe a month to month membership, gym membership, and they'll use like the, you know, the resources, you know, in the gym, like the shower, uh, they'll go in the shower, someone will even work out. And, you know, of course they'll do the hygiene and whatnot there. And, and so I started, I, I would see this lady and i was here exercising and, and I've, I've seen her sort of camping out on the, on the streets as well so i knew she was homeless and one day i happened to look down at her shoe she was she was on the treadmill next to me she was walking i was running and i happened to look down at her shoes and they were so worn out to the core that each step that she took like her shoe almost would like fall off i mean that's how worn out they were i mean i've never seen shoes that worn out before ever so one day i just asked her like you know if she'll be okay with me blessing her with a new pair of shoes and the response she gave me really took me by surprise. Uh, you know, her response was kind of like, you know, I don't need any shoes. My shoes are perfectly fine. Uh, so it kind of like, hell no, but, but thanks for asking. Cause then she was really polite about it. She was like, but thank you for asking. But that response kind of you know, caught me off guard, but then it made a little bit more sense because obviously I'm sure she had a lot of pride and, but there was still like this, this emotion that she exhibited towards me which really struck me and so it kind of left me perplexed for a little while and so I was kind of like I want to I want to know more about what that is that she's feeling right and so I came across these former uh two uh, professional football players that were at the time when when the Rams were in St. Louis Uh, these two professional football players they went undercover to raise raise awareness for homelessness and so they kind of did something similar where they they disguised themselves and they had like a security detail and everything, but they went undercover for like, I think for like a night to raise awareness. And so I was like, oh, that's, that's a pretty good idea. So, but instead of doing it just for a night, I wanted to kind of update Annie a little bit. And so I decided to do it for 48 hours. And I decided to, you know, to, well, I decided to go homeless as an undercover man for 48 hours. Obviously, no security, no, just just me, no food, no, no, no cell phone, no money, no anything. Uh, I wanted to make it as real as possible. And so that's what I did. So she, so that, so that woman at the gym, she sparked something in me and then her reaction to me asking her if she wanted a new pair of shoes uh, really kind of put this whole sort of this whole thing into, into motion for me. So the next thing I had to do was I had to ask my wife to see if she would be okay with me. Because, because obviously there's a lot of risk with, you know, with living on the streets and especially during the time that I did it a few months prior, there was a, there was a guy going around randomly killing homeless people in that area and so so obviously you know it was it was really risky and and so i wanted to make sure that my wife was somewhat okay with me doing it (laughs) even though i know she probably wasn't but but she knew kind of my heart and knew where i was coming from and and knew that i was kind of that i was feeling led to do something uh do something extreme uh, do something radical to to bring awareness to this much deserving population and so so that so that's what I did for eight hours, where I was out on the streets. I, I slept on the concrete. I met a bunch of people that were also living on the streets, and just hearing their testimonies and hearing their journeys. And it it was it was definitely a a life changing experience for me. But my hope is that it's a, a life changing experience for my, for the readers, um, because I think it's something that you know everybody needs to needs to understand and needs to experience you know what my experience was like in terms of listening through through my words
0: and so what was it really like out there and where did you where did you go and how did you eat and were you panhandling and all that stuff
1: so the first the first night was probably the the hardest night for me because it was new to me the whole this whole thing it was new to me and so um, but one of the things that really caught me off guard was this humanity and how how cruel and how cold humankind is to folks that are experiencing difficulty folks that are having a hard time getting on their feet because it was almost as if you know people treated me like i wasn't even there which was which was tough for me it was like i was invincible and so a lot of times when i was out there and yes i was panhandling i was i was trying to make money so i can eat and, you know, I was fortunate because there's a few times where people, even when I wasn't even asking for for money for food, uh, a couple of times people gave me money without me asking, which was which was huge, because I don't know where, that, where the food, where food was going to come from. I didn't know where money is going to come from. And so what really struck me was just how people like a- ignored my existence, like this was I wasn't even there. And so but then I'll see these little kids. I'll see these families with, with little kids, maybe like five, six, seven years of age where they'll be walking past me. I'm, I'm like sprawled out on the sidewalk because I was dehydrated, I, you know, a few times and uh, it was hot. It was uncomfortable. And I'll see these kids looking at me like, why is he, this is not something's not right here. Why is this person laying here on the sidewalk? Um, you know, something What's what's going on. You could kind of see the empathy and the. And, um, the conflict within them, trying to really figure out like why is this person here, you know, or why is all these people here, you know, and so, so that gave me hope. But it, and I feel like sometimes the, even the, the the mean stares, people just looking at me uh, and staring, like I felt that made me feel somewhat good because <laughs> people acknowledge my existence, right? Versus somebody who totally just disregarded me. So that, those those were some very tough things. Um, also, just. I think the other the big thing was after my second night, like I started, my mind started playing tricks with me because I, I wasn't, I didn't really sleep because I was afraid of sleep. Because I was afraid that if I slept, that somebody might try to do something to me, you know? So, so it was hard for me to sleep. And and so, but I was so tired, also fatigued. I never felt so tired in my life. It just even, not even physically, but just the mental, like the mental lethargy that I experienced was, was something that I never, never could imagine because. I started noticing my mind was like really was playing tricks on me. So I was kind of, I was seeing things that weren't there. I was, I was hearing things that weren't there. I was almost like I was starting to have like, like these, like, like it was almost like psychosis. You know, it it was weird. My mind, how my mind was responding to just the environment and how, you know, just the the mental toll that it was having on me, it it was, it was significant. And then even after I finished the experience, the 48 hours, like, even for a good week week and a half afterwards, like still like I, I still felt that emotional just the emotional scars were still there from just the way people were treating me uh, because there was some, some of the casinos I, like they weren't I wasn't even allowed to go in or if I did go in, the security was on me like I mean they were like watching me constantly it letting me know that I'm not supposed to be in here that I was unwelcomed in this place. It was crazy because just a few weeks ago, I was I was in the same casino with my son. You know what I mean, like so. It was just like that that economy, like it it was something that was really hard to um, to wrap my, my my arms around. Definitely, it was it was an interesting experience to say the least.
0: So, besides raising awareness and you know people buying your book to learn more, and you'll have to give us links about where they can buy the book and everything. But what can a, a person who is still lucky enough to have a job and have their home and have money that maybe they can donate to, you know, a cause that might help the homeless, you know, what can they do and who, who should they give that money to? And Mm -hmm. how do we move forward to help fix this?
1: I think that's a great question. Uh, I think that's a question that I I get asked a lot. Uh, And so I I would say that I think it's not always about the, the monetary piece. I think obviously I think, I think sometimes people tend to turn their head the other way because they don't have anything to give, right? Uh, and so so I think it's, a, it's, it's about acknowledging. So I think that, you know, even if, it, if you don't have anything, just even a, a, a hello, how are you doing? You know, what do you need? Is there anything that you need help with? Uh, or if you're like, this, if this is a quick sort of passing by, God bless you, or whatever, some, a gesture, something, you let, let that person know that, you know, you... That you care or that you acknowledge them, uh, I think is, is the, the, the big one because just like anybody else off the streets, uh, if it was somebody who wasn't, you know, living on the streets, if it was somebody that you were, were walking past or you know you were probably acknowledging with maybe a smile or a hello or a nod or something, right? And so, so I think that will go a long way because for me it went a long way. So when, when somebody said even came up to me and said you know sorry I don't have any change on me but I hope you you know hope you get through your situation or and people were telling me, this, even though I wasn't truly homeless, but 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 still, that that made me feel good because somebody you know took the took the time to say, "Hey, I, I care. I care about you. I care about your situation. I hope you get through whatever it is you're going through." That that made the that meant the world to me. And so, so I always tell people, you know, it's, it's not about money. It's not about you know having food on you or water. Sometimes it's just about just a, a, a quick, easy acknowledgement. That's it.
0: But as far as people who do have resources, what, what should they do? Who should they give to? How do we help? I mean, because so many people are being evicted. So many people have lost their jobs. The problem mm-hmm. is getting worse, not better since your mm-hmm. experiment in 2018. So unfortunately, maybe fortunately, cause it's you, people are going to ask you, how do we help? You know? So you get to answer from mm-hmm. a person who's been there. You get to answer from a mental health standpoint and in a, in a location with high needs. So hopefully, hopefully you have answers as I guess what I'm saying.
1: Uh, yeah, certainly. No, uh, I I mean, whatever community you're in, I mean, there's, you know, the good thing is there's, there's resources. And so plugging into whatever those resources are in your community, if you want to give, I mean, there's always a need, you know, sort of there'd be a, there'd be like a homeless shelter, or it'd be, you know, some nonprofits that work with the homeless populations. Uh, you know, I think that, figuring out what those resources are in your community goes a long ways, uh, but they're, but they're all, there's always a need. Um, there's always a need for donations. There's always a need for, you know, for, for volunteering. Volunteering, a lot of times people talk about volunteer work. Volunteering is huge for many different reasons, but but for but, but the, the big one for me is the feeling that you get from volunteering, like, you know, like, like just that, you know, I'll give you an example, just a couple of weeks ago, my church, uh, some of the guys, you know, cause I'm the homeless guy, so, I won't say homeless guy, but just based on my experience and my, you know, my experience working with the population, you know, my church reached out to me and, and like, yeah, we, we want to give something. So it was a men's group, a men's ministry in my church, and they wanted to do something, but they didn't know what they, what that would entail. So, so, so one of the things they asked me about is, you know, give just have a, a day of giving to the homeless. And I was like, great, let's, let's do that. And so we, we made um, a bunch of hygiene kits. Uh, we had blankets and coats and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff, um, some, some food, some snacks, um, and we went out one morning, and that's what we did. We we gave, we serve, we serve the community by by giving. Um, also, you know, some of us, you know, some people wanted us to pray, pray over them, so we prayed over them. And um, and just the, just the feeling of of that, just you know, doing something to kind of help those that are in need. Uh, I mean, there's no, I mean, there's really no feeling to describe that, you know. And so I think that you know, volunteering is is, is a big one. And there's so many different things you can do, but I, I encourage people to, you know, to, to connect with whatever local resources that are in their community, see what the need is. If it's through donations, if that's what you're most comfortable with doing, great. If it's more through volunteering, that's great. If, it, if it's more through advocacy work, even better, you know. So, so yeah, so just figuring out what, what the need is, what, what resources are in your community, uh, I would start there. And, yeah, and, and make it, you know, turn into something that you do on a regular basis. You know, my family, we... We give several times a year uh, and one, one of the times we give is on my anniversary date of my 40 hour experience and we we make it a, a family effort uh so we will make hygiene kits and past year my my son and i we went out and i had a little wagon and we put a bunch of hygiene kits in the wagon and you know we went out and he was passing out you know hygiene kits to you know to people and just his empathy that he had and him and, and actually, the idea was really—it was largely his idea, which was crazy. He's only—he's only seven years of age, and and I think that came from just you know being around me and seeing my heart and seeing how much I you know I give myself um, to others, and so it's infectious. And so I think that if we all do a little bit of something, you know, we will be in a much much better place.
0: Well, agreed. And I'm big on both those things, volunteering and advocacy. And you know, we've got to start to actually fund Mm -hmm. each state and the whole nation in proper security net programs that will help fix the systemic problem and get people Mm -hmm. the security so that they don't land on the streets in the first place. So that's my little bandwagon right there. So where can we get your book? So my book, so 48- Sorry, particularly independent places, as you know.
1: Hmm. Well, I think a lot of independent places, um, you know, they, they they're carrying it. It's, it's available everywhere. So, but some of the independent places may not have it in the stocks, So they'll have the capability to order it for you. So if you go to any independent uh, bookstore community, you can you can mention the title of the book, and they should be able to order it for you um, to pick up or or to mail it directly to you. Also. You can also check out my website, uh, DrSheldonJacobs.com, and I can sign the book for you if you like. So there's an option on there where I can sign it for you or mail it to you. So that's another option for you. As uh, Again, my website is DrSheldonJacobs.com.
0: So if we buy it off of your website, it comes directly from you, and that's how you have the chance to sign it, correct. right? That's correct. Okay, Cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then tomorrow you're doing something with PBS. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, correct. So PBS is doing a uh, like a national tour that's focused on mental health. It's called a well-beings tour. And so tomorrow evening, so uh, January 12th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, there will be a national live, sc- live stream that's talking about youth mental health. I'm talking about ways to to combat this this epidemic that we have, it is an, ep- an epidemic uh, that we're we we're faced with, and a lot of people aren't talking about it right now because of all these other things that are going on. But but with time, and I think you know a direct sort of residual effect from the from just what everything is going on from the pandemic, you know, you're going to be seeing more people struggling with mental health and no more issues centered around mental health. So, so PBS is trying to get somewhat ahead of it. And so it's, it's going to be a great event. I'm one of four panelists. Um, i be talking about mental health and talking about just kind of how we came into the field. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know about me is my cousin, I have a cousin who he's about a year, year and a half younger than me, you know, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 19. And, um, you know, he tried to commit suicide and it was a very rough time for my family, and one of the things that I think changed his life was was NAMI, um, the organization that I'm a part of, uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness. I think it, it really changed his life because we offer support groups, and so he was able to get plugged into a support group where there's other individuals that were struggling with mental health and mental illness, and you know he, it's the power in that being able to you know to be in the same room with others that are struggling. It really helped him towards his recovery. And so, uh, so yeah, so I'll be sharing, you know, his story and kind of how that impacted me and my, my wanting to go into, into mental health.
0: Well, that's super awesome. I'm glad that they are trying to address that, you know, so I'll need a a link, you know, how do they see it later? So if you could get that, and then, you know, if people across the country are looking for Like you said, what benefited your cousin, those support groups. If you can also give me any links of how people can plug in to get help, especially if they can't afford a therapist, those sorts of resources will be so appreciated that I'd love to publish for you. Well, I thank you so much for your time, your time, times. A hundred compared to everybody else. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing and the, the plea for awareness and advocacy and volunteerism. I think that's going to go a long way. Oh, dang it. I meant to ask this earlier. Hmm. I got to ask it now. Cause I had a, a lightning strike. You know, you were talking about the little kid who you could see their empathy and their sort of wrestling with, what do I do with this? If you could leave us with how do we teach empathy mm-hmm. to adults who didn't learn it as a child, who are seeing people go through hard times, what can we do? Because empathy, most people don't seem to have enough empathy.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, I think, I think it's empathy is something that I, I think it's a learned a learned trait or learned behavior um, but i think there's also a small percentage of people who you know have an inability to experience empathy and so but i think you know for the most part i think it's you know you know kind of you know we're, we're parents and and teaching you know our kids you know what what not necessarily what empathy is but more or less it's like just to care for others uh, like I said, you know, my son, you know, he he sees what I do, um, you know, me helping people that are in need. And he naturally developed this sense of empathy himself, you know, it didn't necessarily come down to me, just necessarily teaching him per se, but just him kind of watching and observing me and, and, and kind of my mission and what I, what I do, I think it, it resonated with him. And so, so I think it's kind of you know us kind of just doing, you know, doing, being positive and, and, and trying to help others, you know, as as much as we can, whatever that may look like for, you know, for each person. Uh, I think, I think it starts there. And I think that by doing so, I think that that will, um, I think that will be, I think that can be replicated across generations. If it starts with us as adults doing that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. But if I, as an example, just me, because to make it personal, if I model this empathetic behavior, do other adults really, Mm -hmm see that and say, I want to do that too, the way a kid would, is it really possible to teach it to an adult um, through your behavior?
1: It probably depends on an adult, but uh, I'm sure, I think as a, for an adult, I think it might be a little bit harder, but, but I think, but I think that it is, I think there, it is infectious. I think that, I think, I think adults would, will find the need to to do so if they see other people doing it. You know, I, I do, I do believe in that. I'm, sometimes I, I give us, you know, maybe too much credit or too much hope, but um, that's just me. So, so I, I do feel that I think with, with children, I think it's easier because adults are a lot of times reset in our ways, right? We, we have our values and we believe what we're going to believe no matter what somebody tells us. Doesn't tell us, you know. As evidenced by what everything's been going on in society, but I think that, but I think it's still our, our our duty to still lead and to to be positive and with the hope that you know more people will see you you as an example. So yeah, to ask your question, I, I'll say yes. I think it can happen to
0: adults. Well, we will end on that positive peer pressure note then. (laughs) That was good. All right. Thank you again, Dr. Sheldon Jacobs. I really appreciate your time and all the best of luck to you in your endeavors and getting awareness out through your book. Certainly. And thank you for having me. Okay, revelers. You heard from Dr. Sheldon, and I am here to tell you a few more things. So thank you for staying till the end. Couple of things, as you know, BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com is my sponsor and is a sponsor of this episode, obviously. And they they just let me run with it. They didn't know I was going to have him on. They didn't. They don't know that we talk about it all the time, and more and more as it becomes more and more important as you heard, most therapists are very, very busy. So the really nice thing about betterhelp.com is that they will find you someone who has time that meets your schedule. And if it's never been clear before, I do not make a cent off of them unless you sign up for a whole month. So basically if you do, and I get some cash for this labor of love project, great. If you don't, and you seek out some other sort of therapy or group in person or whatever, I don't care. I'm very, very, very lucky to have my hubby who supports me this way. And the important thing is that you get the help that you need, whether it's betterhelp.com or somewhere else. So Other things to know is that I have another author coming later this week, slash weekend. And so check in for that. And please subscribe. Please share. Besides throwing cash my way, honestly, the best way that you can support me is just telling people about it. Every, every episode, I am told by at least one person, if not multiple people, how they've been touched By the podcast, how much it means to them, how they've been growing and evolving and changing and connecting with different people in their lives. Basically, it's just very positive. So, the more that you can share, the more you're spreading positivity out into the world. And that's what this episode was about about the power of being positive, the power of being a good role model, the power of positive peer pressure and the power of therapy. All of these things were all wrapped up in one episode that you can share either this episode, your favorite episode, or the podcast in general with those in your world. So please do that. And I will talk to you very soon. Take care.